SheQuest Podcast is the home of heart-opening dialogues, stories, and experiences for self-identified women on SheQuest. Season 5 is now bilingual as I welcome co-host Nadia Bonafa. Hey, Nadia! <laughs> hey, Estelle! Delighted to be part of SheQuest Podcast Forward Movement to Live Aware, Bold, and Whole. Let's do this! Woohoo! Hi, SheQuest. Welcome to SheQuest Podcast with guest. My name is Estelle Thompson, and I have such a special, very, very auspicious episode for you all today. A guest that I've been meaning. I was looking back at our email communication, and we've been communicating since 2019 to have this guest on the show. And Finally, finally, we get together. It's not the way we wanted, but it's the it's the best the way that it's, it's happening. So we'll just roll with it. Her name is Kate Inglis, and I know I've mentioned I just read her bio and everything in the intro. Um, but just I just wanted to add before you officially meet her. Um, I feel very, very kindred to, to Kate. Her book uh, was really a companion on a plane ride. I'll never forget to Costa Rica. And not because I was going to Costa Rica, like literally because I was reading, ferociously reading her stunning memoir slash field guide to grief notes for the ever lost. And I was literally like sinking in my seat and I was drinking my little Sprite and, and everything really landed really hard and like soft at the same time. Um, and it really felt like her truth and her story was my truth and, and my story. And, and so Kate, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I wish it were as we had planned with tea and sweet things and being face to face. But I think rolling with it is the theme of the last year. So so here we are. It really is. And for everyone listening, I, I usually have, have a bit of a script for our episode, but I, I decided with Kate, I wanted to luxuriate in her presence. <laughs> <laughs> and so this episode is a bit more stream of consciousness and um, and we're just going to let it go since it's like really not as we've planned. We're just going to go and go with that theme uh, anyhow. But that being said, I do ask the same question on all my podcasts. And it's what makes you feel alive today, Kate? Oh, my gosh. Now I wish I had like done my homework because <laughs> I didn't. I, oh, um. What makes me feel most alive today, if if I have to be, and I do, I, honesty is a principle. So I'm going to say the first thing that came into my head, which is struggle. Struggle makes me feel most alive because I'm, I'm currently trying to, at, at my age of 47, I'm trying to make peace with my discontent and my disappointment and all of those neurotic kind of cycles that we go through emotionally. 
And, and, and I think struggle is one of those things that really does kind of unite us together. Often it pulls us apart too often, especially when we look sort of at a macro level from, from high up. But I think individual to individual, we all know what it is to be racked with self-doubt and to have goals that feel one day reachable and the next day ridiculous. Um, and and so, so that's kind of what I'm embroiled in right now is, is trying to write a novel and trying to not beat myself up about not making more money or growing older or being the kind of parent that I want to be, being present, those awful words, being present and being grateful and all of those things and being positive. Oh, there's the big one that feels so so difficult. So, so that's the way that I'll start off is with, with what I don't mean to be a downer, but to just say, we have to get to a point where even our struggle feels really special. And damn it, you've just got to grasp onto it and say, this is what it looks like for me. And it's okay to be in that um, writhing space. Do you all know why I want to go on the show now? <laughs> you said struggles are really, what did you say? Struggles are really. I don't know. I think just in general, just the idea that struggle is, is, is one of the most enlivening things yes, that we can experience. <laughs> Something like that. And I, I love this point of view. We need more. <laughs> yeah, we keep Why we keep we trying talk to fight about it? struggle more. We just yeah. talk about the positive when it's like that shit is yeah. hard and struggle yeah. is like part of everything else. And there's something about sort of the the feel good culture that we're in that raises serenity up to this to the top of the mountain like this is the peak this is what you're pushing for is serenity and there's a a lot of that just makes me feel really inadequate i'm never going to be serene who are we kidding here <laughs> you know i'm always going to be hungry and i'm always going to be just a little bit dissatisfied but but that is a fuel if we can only just get used to that discomfort it's a fuel whether we chose that discomfort or not because obviously sometimes discomfort uh, visits upon us um, you know as you and I both know in in the worst possible way that's mm. kind of where I'm at mm. I <laughs> I want to take all, all notes I'll have to like transcript your <laughs> 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 everything everything you say um, and you know everything you say really resonates in in your book and I I have it I wish you would see my copy Kate it's <laughs> oh I love <laughs> that it's like something spilled on it at some point I and like that. all the pages are just like you can see some like fingerprints and they're like yes. highlighted and you know yeah. un like underlined and I just love the feel of this book that's lived it feels many many kind of lifetime but um mm. but just so uh, the listeners that don't know you, I would love it. And obviously you can't tell, you know, in your book, you go by years and everything, but could you mm -hmm. just 
Here at SheQuest, we call it um, my she story. And in the context of, of grief, because I think that's really why I, I asked you here to talk to us and, you know, your relation with, with grief and your relation mm-hmm. to in your body. And you've already spoken, you know, about that. Can you just tell us your story and I guess why you wrote the book, A Feel Guide to Grief? Almost 14 years ago, I was uh, pregnant with my, for the second time, with identical twin boys. I already had a two and a half year old boy. And the very short story is that I suffered a complication six months in at 28 weeks, three months early, exactly to the day of my due date. I went into labor and had one of those horrible crash C-sections, which is where, where the whole room kind of explodes and it really does feel like a crash. And Liam and Ben were born at two pounds and two pounds, nine ounces after twin, something called twin to twin transfusion syndrome, which is something that you'll only really ever hear of if you have the particular type of twinning that had developed inside of me, which is a single placenta that both children had to share. And so it's really a gravity problem. So Liam being on the bottom ended up getting sort of flooded, whereas Ben was on the top and he was drained. And generally speaking, when this complication happens, it's the kid who gets too much that suffers the most because it's just not recoverable to our all of our major organs. So poor Liam, he, he lived for six weeks um, he had brain surgery and heart surgery. Um, we had miraculous days um, and we had uneventful days, if there can be such a thing inside the NICU. And we had disastrous days. Really, when you have a premature baby, it's the Wild West in there, you know, because a fetus is not a baby. A fetus is a fetus. So they become injured differently than an infant does. They heal differently than any other phase of human heals. So every doctor, every nurse inside the premature baby ward of the hospital really is just kind of shooting in the dark for the best possible way forward. They don't know why some babies thrive and why some babies don't. So so it's a really strange place to occupy. And so we were there for two months We left with Ben, uh, who is a very happy, healthy, he was the little one, he was two pounds. It's hard to believe when I see an infant now that's a newborn and I look at them and how tiny they are. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, you know, I'll realize that what I'm looking at is an eight pound baby. And it's just Mm -hmm. like this tiny, fragile little thing. And I think that kid is four times the size of Ben Mm -hmm. and Liam when they were born. And it's just staggering. It's incredible what we can become accustomed to Mm. in life. So Liam died once it became apparent that he was having bleeding on the brain and that he really would not recover and he wasn't going to survive. And so they took out the ventilator and he, he died on my chest. And oh, there's just so much about being his mother that was such a shock and such a trauma. But also such an illumination in ways that I didn't expect that I ended up, of course, 
um, going to all those depths in the book. And, and I, I, I like, I always, I still feel this pressure when I tell the story to apologize for it, to say, ugh, like I know to give the dime store tour is, is a bit of a cast iron skillet to the, Mm -hmm. to the heart. You know, it's, it's a tough thing because the word dead is not supposed to go next to the word baby. It, It makes us recoil. It makes us turn away. But that is why bereaved parents have such a particularly rough go because you feel positively like Medusa. You know, nobody wants to even catch your eye because you you become this kind of a pox that other people are afraid of catching because it's a cosmic, a horrible cosmic reversal to to go through losing a child. And so it's a lonely place to be. Uh, But again, just to have known him for the two months for the six weeks that I knew him, uh, I would I would walk. His, it was his path, not mine, and I have to take it as the honor and the shit luck that it was that it turned out to be me to walk that path with him. And 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 I'm glad to have known him. I'm glad to have loved him, even if he never got to feel grass between his toes. He still represents a kind of magic. So, ah, (laughs) sometimes it makes me weepy. So don't feel weepy if you hear that in my voice, who, you know, the people who are listening. It's, it's not, it's weird. You know, 14 years later, it's not a sad thing, which is a weird thing to say, but it's one of many things that have happened to me that have been difficult, that have required me to completely blow apart my conception of life and existence and myself and spirit and recovery. I mean, I feel like my life has been upended many times since then in ways that have been amazing and strange and unexpected, but that's just what it is to be alive, I guess. Um, Mm. Yeah, I feel, I write about it in the book and that I feel not so much anymore because the edges of it soften with time, as you know. But for a long time, I felt like the luckiest unlucky woman in the world. <gasps> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> because I read that and I know this by, I know that line by heart, the luckiest, most unlucky mother. Yeah. 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 And um, uh, I thank you so much. And you can weep all you want here. Uh, weep all yeah. you want. I think um, yeah. uh, I just... Weeping is good. and um... It is. But I, I always feel like I, I don't want this, you know, in, in this conversation with you, I it sounds a bit strange, but it's, it's not about me. It's about the person who's listening. Mm. And so I don't want the person who's listening to get distracted from their own integration mm. and their own thoughts by me. You know, it's mm. weird. Like you, you and I are just a springboard mm. for the person who's listening. So mm-hmm. it, it always feels, you know, I had to, I went to Edmonton six times, I think, five, I can't even remember now, to the Walk to Remember, which is for bereaved parents. And it was a beautifully organized event out in a park in a big field. And there were over a thousand people there each time. And the organizers had me go to give a speech, like they wanted like a 20 minute long kind of reflection 
that was kind of the, I was the headliner of the, the dead baby parade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was able to laugh about it eventually, but uh, it was, <laughs> it was funny. I mean, you know, you get these kind of uh, dark sense of humor when you go through these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, it was a really beautiful day, but, and, and the organizer said the same thing. She said, it's okay if you get emotional. And I thought, well, I know, but this, I, I'm not here to, to sort of exercise that for me. I'm here to prompt something in the thousand people, in the mothers, the fathers, and grandparents who are listening. It's I'm here to hopefully sort of jog something for them. And so that's kind of, I, I know that you are the softest possible place to land with the mm-hmm. most complex feelings. And, and I love that about you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's all about the people who are listening. So, so I'm kind of wanting to be focused on, on providing some, some value there. So, yeah. Mm. There's so many things I, we could kind of go in. Um, and I feel the book is a great place to just snowball on a lot of the subject that you've touched on, particularly mm. in the wild, wild west of NICU. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um and I and I laugh and I it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lawless yeah. place in terms of healthcare. It is it is complete anarchy and lawlessness. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everyone's just like, well, let's see if this works. We don't know. So it's it's a crazy place for sure. We all have different experiences in grief and and in NICU. Um Yeah, yeah. But and perhaps I'd love to know your experience with like the recovery too. We don't often speak of the recovery of mom with a crashy section, which I had as well. Mm -hmm. And like the shock that, that comes with that on top of like just being hijacked by just having babies that are still part that always part of you can you perhaps speak to that and I I do want to speak of Liam more um and I I there's so many of what you said like just speak to NICU just a little bit more I hear about people talking about recovering from difficult c-sections and birth trauma and I have a hard time relating to it and and I don't mean that in any judgmental way whatsoever because a lot of the time when we talk about birth trauma, which is a very real thing, and the anxiety around birth and just more broadly, the anxiety around the whole endeavor of trying to become a mother and what that means in the female body, what it means to try to conceive, to try to give birth safely, to try to give birth maybe not even safely, but maybe even beautifully. Um, this is this is deeply, deeply emotional territory. So I can only speak um, when I speak about it. I'm only speaking from speaking from the hip of you know of of how it felt to me just in in just trying to survive it. And, and I guess that's I didn't matter anymore in the NICU. I I don't even remember recovery, physical recovery, because I was in such, I mean, I think I was just in shock. So, you know, I woke up and my belly was gone. And I just remember this total state of panic, like they're not supposed to be out, like just like I'd had a limb chopped off. Um, Like it was just, everything was wrong and, and that it just couldn't be happening. So the last thing that I was thinking about was what had been done to me. Um, 
uh, or my body or how how I recovered emotionally in terms of my role as a conduit or as a vessel. Um, the only way that I can start talking about that is many, many months later yeah. when I got to the point of grappling with having been a vessel that failed. So the C-section was utterly irrelevant. It was just a minor detail, even the way it all went down, which was terrifying. Um, the bigger thing that really stays with you as a woman is, you know, and, and I, this is a bit of a metaphor that I get into in the book. And I think this is why men and women have such a hard time understanding each other after birth, after any birth, let alone after a traumatic one. Um, is that I felt like my body was a crashed car. So I, I couldn't, it, it was like hitting black ice. And I know it wasn't my fault. I knew that cerebrally, but it was like having to exist inside that bloody crashed car for the rest of my life. And I, it's, I'm an intellectual woman. I know it wasn't my fault. I know that I didn't do anything to cause it. And I mean, it, these things happen, accidents happen, complications happen. And I knew that, but there is something almost so deep as to be muscular and to be physical in terms of like the memory of our physical body that, that there is an, an extremely deep shame as the woman as vessel that you didn't keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, the bottom of the well, you know, that is, um, and, and, and as I said before, it's the whole journey of trying to become a mother. So there are women out there who have grappled with infertility or miscarriages or, you know, babies that were born perhaps in the NICU and survived, but were profoundly injured. I mean, my goodness, unless you have a completely, you know, perfect birth, if, if there is such a thing, a better word is uneventful, which is all any of us could ever hope for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what you want. You want the most boring birth ever, I know. you know? Yeah. Um, but we're, it's, it's really, it, that is such a huge function of our biology is to yeah. reproduce and to grow and to nurture. Um, that is the human evolution. The, the man does one thing, the woman does another thing. And it's a big burden. You know, it really is deeply meaningful. And there's this huge responsibility to, to have to make breast milk and to have your womb be a safe and clean place. And when we don't provide that, it really gets to the heart of our being as a woman and our worth as a woman. And so that to me is the healing journey that really lingers is mm -hmm. the forgiveness of saying, you know what, sweetheart, shit, just hit the fan mm. as shit does. <laughs> you just have to let it go. You just have to let go, let go, let go and adjust and let go and adjust some more and let go and adjust some more. And it just takes time. You know, I don't think there's any pithy spiritual 
uh, practice or I really don't think there's any way around it. I think it just takes time. And I think every morning when you wake up and you're feeling that shame that's kind of clinging to you like a bad stink, you just, you can't feel bad for feeling bad that you you shouldn't feel like you're failing because you're having a hard time getting over failing. You should just take a deep breath and say, it just takes time. Mm. Eventually it will soften and it will slowly, slowly let go of you or you let go of it. Yeah. I, I So there really isn't any sort of, I wish I had a tidier answer for that. But this is this but, is really fundamental stuff, you know. Yeah, and like the more I as you speak, I I hear a lot of really the dark side of motherhood that really is not really out in the open. <laughs> um, yeah. and it's almost almost be shamed. I mean, so much things. I mean, we, I relate in what you are, you know, saying in, in basically everything, you know, um, I think the out of body experience too. And I love that you said like a traumatic birth, but like also like (laughs) being initiated, um, like my first son, like I had a perfect textbook, like pr- mm-hmm. pregnancy, labor, you know, I literally like I can compare the two and I, I kind of still had that like fragmented, like, okay, wait, like, who am I here? Did I do a good oh, job? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, like it's 100%. like that from like, okay, wait, I was like, I wasn't a mom, like now I'm a mom and like nobody told me it was going to be like that hard. Like I thought it was going to be all like rosy and pink and <laughs> Yeah. Like what a like what a joke too. And if you dare to say like, you know, I'm thinking about like depression or like if you dare to say like, you know, I I don't know, maybe I I, I don't know, do I? I don't know. I don't I, nothing comes to mind now, but you know, you know it's like shame. Like people will shame you like, "Oh, like you're not a good mother." Like when in fact it's like maybe it's natural to feel like that. I mean, traumatic is a relative word. Yeah. So every birth is traumatic, really. And, and, and I don't mean to, it's just that relativity. My, my first birth was somewhat traumatic. I mean, it was, it was a gong show. It was just, <laughs> I was ground beef for months after my first birth. You know, it was, I was strapped down like Jesus on the cross. And would given one more contraction or he would cut me open. <laughs> and I, you know, I tore from my chin to the back of my neck. I mean, it was just like, it was a mess. But I had a friend at the time who was a doula in training and she came into the hospital after. And I was sitting with, I was sitting sort of crisscross applesauce with Evan, my my first son between my legs, This and he was just sleeping. And he was the most mystifying thing I had ever laid eyes on. And I was pure ground beef a bloody mess. And she came into the room and she said, Oh, I heard what happened. I am so sorry. And I remember like snapping out of it. Like what, what you're sorry. Like, um, there's a baby here and he's amazing. So what I, you know, I, it was a really funny thing. Birth is such a birth is such a funny thing. It's, Mm. and I don't know birth and motherhood. You know, we talk a lot about shame I'm never really sure if that's the right word, because I think 
what it is is that all of us edge away from complexity. We like things to be simple. We nuance is hard. Mm. And so that when we're on the receiving end of someone kind of edging away, it feels like we're being shamed. When maybe we're not, I mean maybe we are. I it, it depends on the situation, but I think we're not I mean our current world betrays this that we're not good at uh nuance. We're not very good at looking at things in a measured, sane, rational way. Because we get really emotional and and we apply, we are meaning-seeking, meaning-applying creatures. So we can't help but put our feelings onto other people and our inadequacies. And then we receive other people's inadequacies like it is a comment on us. And so there's there's so much that we say that we don't speak. You know, I think it is hard after you have a child, even if you have the most ordinary child in the most ordinary way, it doesn't feel okay anymore to be regularly, ordinarily a little bit vain or a little bit, you know, or a little bit selfish or a little bit just fed up, you know, because somehow there's this, this vision of, of mother and, and everything that comes with the word mother that tells us that we're supposed to be this unfailingly together archetype. And of course, nobody is. So, you know, um, it really has so much to do with learning to embrace nuance. Nuance. And it's funny you mentioned it because I was thinking about that word. I don't know if you know this about me, Kate, but like, I love words. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm such a geek. Like, I love to geek out on words and know the roots. And I haven't looked up the root of nuance, but I was, um, you know, I was thinking about it this week, like just going about life and just the complexities of it. And yeah, like just nuance it is. I just looked it up, of course, because oh, I'm, I'm a dork too. Yeah. And, and it, says, <laughs> it says a subtle difference in or shade of meaning expression or sound. So shades of meaning Aida. is what yeah. it means. You know, if it's, it's, it's looking through the kaleidoscope and then turning it. I'm so excited to introduce Estelle Thompson, yes, that's me, online art and yoga studio, a place to engage, explore, transform, and most importantly, play to free your unique expression of soul. With the coupon Studio 20, try one month of studio features with 20% off. Again, that's Studio 20, S-T-U. D-I-O-2-0. You're welcome. Now back to our electrifying guests and conversation. And talking to about nuance is something that I really appreciated in your book is just how heavily poetry was part of the dialogue because I know in my journey, you know, recovery or whatever you want to call it, uh, sometimes poetry has been like a solace and like a therapy in itself and like captured really things that no one really has grasped before. And you said something too um, when you said, you know, I'm a 
rational woman. Like, I, like I'm like an intellectual person. And like, I feel that way too, where you're like, you know, you shouldn't feel responsible. And it's yeah. like, but like your bones, your everything is telling you like opposite. It's like almost like mm-hmm. bigger than you. And there's something I have it. I have your book open here, and it's a uh, something you shared by. I'm gonna screw up the name, but it's Stanislaw Jersey Leck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just gonna read the beginning, but it's it says, "No snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible, but you mm-hmm. will feel responsible. You'll yeah. need to inhabit the dark as much as you need food and air." Then one day you'll open your eyes and you realize you've crossed from one side to the other across a boundary you didn't think existed. It's so interesting to hear those words. And again, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very relevant reflection because I hear those words and I remember where I was when I wrote them. And I feel like I'm across several boundaries mm. since even having written them. You know, I think something that is maybe the greatest kind of, uh, you know, Scotch Protestant grandmother, tough love thing that you could hear would be that you can't see around corners. Don't think you're so clever that you can see around corners so that you know that your life is nothing but catastrophe and, and sadness from here on out. Because you can't see around corners. You don't know who you're going to be in a year or in five years or in 14 years. You have no idea. So just give it time, you know? And, and I think we don't know what we don't know. And mm-hmm. there's a lot about our emotional life that is profoundly arrogant. It's kind of funny when you think about it. As a master catastrophizer, I can attest to this, that, that, you know, you, when you're depressed, when you're sad, when you're traumatized, when you're just listless in your life, the problem isn't the emotion. The problem is the certainty that you are certain that you are right about yourself, about your situation, about how lost you are, about how stuck you are. The problem is that you think you're correct. The problem isn't your emotion. The problem is your arrogance in thinking that you know what's going to happen and that you have the right read on yourself and your life. Says who? Mm. You don't. You, You never forecasted traumas before they happened in the past. You never forecasted the good fortune that settled upon you before in the past. So you certainly can't do it in the future, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think it, it, it really, if we can learn just a little more humility in terms of how we interpret our feelings as just feelings, they're not, you know, capital T, the truth. <laughs> they're just feelings. And so that has, I think, if we can get to that point of just just distinguishing, letting our feelings exist, but as feelings, so that they can just wash over us uh, and not stick, that has a lot to do with being able to sort of clumsily trip over those boundaries that we didn't even see that are there Mm -hmm. that help us to grow. I 
had never seen it like that. And I love it because we are mm. arrogant. This, you know, I don't say it in these words, but in my documentary, I, I speak to that. Like, yeah. you know, like grieving, like this is not supposed to be my life. Like this is not what I had yeah. planned. Why was I so set on what I had planned? Like I had pl put this plan like on a pedestal. Why did I do that? Like how arrogant of me. <laughs> uh, no, but like I say that with humor now, you know, but I know, I, I know. You know, I'm going to share with you, Kate, my favorite, which speaks to what you just said. It's mm -hmm. like literally my favorite paragraph of your book. I have posted uh, it on Instagram before, but um, yeah. And it's about vulnerability. And it's really what you're speaking of, you know, right mm -hmm. now, like, you know, being open to the uncertainty, you know, of your life. But um, it says uh, vulnerable or antonym, vulnerable, be open and bendy, like fresh growth on tree, be malleable and tender with proficiency in movement. This way you are able to sit with all that's insecure, easily destroyed, unfortified, unprotected, and porous. You are unthreatenable because when you're not afraid of uncertainty, you've got nothing to protect. And when you've got nothing to protect, your image, illusions, defenses, you are supple. This is my preferred strength, tolerance, how ice cream melts still delicious, how a field turns into a pond, and back again. <laughs> This makes me want to weep. <laughs> yeah, that was that was in reaction to thinking about the word strength. Mm. And and which to me says rigidity. Boy, oh boy. I mean, you know, there's that whole I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, but the whole uh story that if you're in a car crash, The reason why you sustain we sustain injury is because we tense up. We just it. I, I don't know how you couldn't, yeah. Because that's your reaction whenever you see a crash coming, whether you're about to trip or your car loses control. We instinctually clench, and that is what causes injury: is the tightening, the clenching, the rigidity. And so, if there is any practice that he kind of like a practice that has no lessons and no teacher and no help, but a practice in trying to, to be supple as a human being. Mm. And it's really hard and no one's going to help you. And there's no book you can read and there's no course you can take. And there's, there's nobody to tell you how to do it, but, but to try to keep that word top of mind is that all you need to do is to just try to be supple. It has a lot to do with letting yourself be where you are. No one is impervious to uncertainty. Nobody just said, it, it's not like we can wake up every day and say, well, I don't care. I don't mind whatever happens to me. Of course we care. Of course we mind. Um, uncertainty is terrifying. But knowing that we all have our own concoction of various different uncertainties awaiting to unfold in our lives, we would do well to to not be shocked by them when they happen, which again, is it even possible? Because things happen in our life and the first thing we think is, why me? Which is what you were getting at, you know, but this isn't how my life is supposed to go. I wasn't supposed to 
have a child that died. I wasn't supposed to not be able to conceive. I wasn't supposed to get a divorce. I wasn't supposed to be unhappy in this way or in that way, or I wasn't supposed to not be able to make my my dream career uh, come to fruition. So why me is really at the heart of our rigidity, is, is sort of wanting to keep a hold of what was supposed to be. And, you know, as little as I know about Buddhism, I think, um, you know, I'm not a practicing Buddhist and I'm certainly not very well read, but they do kind of pop up in my periphery. I had a Buddhist publisher, for heaven's sakes, for notes for the Everlast. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly the Buddhists don't mind bad language and <laughs> <laughs> bad language and snorts. Um, but I feel like there is something in what I understand of the Buddhist practice in loosening our grip just a little bit in all the supposed to's, how you're supposed to show up, how your life is supposed to go, how you're supposed to behave, and just trying to let a little breath be a little longer. I I think it's just maybe an awareness to just keep trying. I think if we keep trying to be supple, that is, I think, in many ways, has an effect of helping us to be more supple. You know, trying is doing. It's it's faking it till we make it, right? I hope so too. <laughs> with with lots of room for failure, and but then we have one of those days where we think, "Wow, the furthest word that comes to mind in describing myself right now is supple." Mm. Like I'm just tense. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm absolutely enraged at where my life has turned out or what, I, what I've lost or mm-hmm. what I don't have. And then if you can kick in in that moment and say, okay, so those are my feelings today. And I'm just going to try again tomorrow. Feel, I'm going to let myself feel angry today because that's okay because that's a heat that, is a, that can be a generative heat in our lives if we uh, don't let it you know, sink us and drag us down to the bottom. I'm just going to let myself feel that way today and I'm going to have a, all the do all the things that my mother told me to do. I'm going to have a healthy dinner. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a long shower. I'm going to get to bed early and do my best to sleep well. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to try again. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of being supple just has to do with try again tomorrow. Just to circle back a little bit at mm-hmm. your you know, your operation and then kind of having been like out of your body. Um, Cause I remember, and I can, again, we can only speak for our experience, Kate and I, mm-hmm. but um, like, I remember Nikki being like that, like tomorrow's going to be another day. Like it was like literally um, in there. It was like every day was lifetime. Like one day is a murder. The other day is like yeah. a, a trip in a field. Another day is a victory. Another day is Time doesn't exist in there. Time does not exist. No. And I think they've changed it now. Like, I think you can be, I remember I can sleep there, and but I think now they have rooms. I, I, I don't know. I haven't followed up on that. Do you know that. what? They, I, my, it's, an, it's a, it's a tangent, but my mother still makes incubator quilts, her and all of her quilting bee. Aww. So I get in there once a year or so, or yeah. a couple times a year to bring in like stacks of quilts for all the parents to take home. It, it is so different now than mm. when both of us would have been in there because they have the incubators 
in the rooms now, or at least they have some rooms when you're going to be there a long time, uh, like we were, where you're actually sleeping next to your child through the night. And um, yeah, it's they've. It's the one thing, you know, I, I, I know I said before that it's complete anarchy and Wild West in the NICU, which it is, medically speaking. Everyone's just flying by the seat of their pants, you know, doctors included. But there's also so much heart in there mm-hmm. and so much compassion and kindness. And oh, it's, you know, I don't want to fall prey to all of the, the cliches about nurses and doctors being, you know, angels. They're regular mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. They have their own fears and their own stories and their own biases. And the work they do is profoundly challenging, I think, mm-hmm. of, of almost all of the healthcare disciplines. The NICU is utterly perplexing because mm-hmm. you're dealing with bodies as as one as one doctor said to me, you're dealing everything that you touch has the consistency of wet Kleenex because these are fetuses and you're you're these are micro diagnoses and micro surgeries and micro lives. The expertise combined with the combined with the anarchy, combined with the need for constant adjustment and Oh, yeah. It just, it blows the mind. It's such a new field as well. And um, Mm -hmm. it's funny when I, like, when I reflect kind of my time there, like, I was such a ghost, you know, for I think the first (laughs) Mm -hmm. month and a half, like a a, literally a ghost. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and then something happened in me. I think it's like, it was the first time in my life I started asking questions. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how I can explain like I, I found myself a lot you know through that which almost ties back to your word struggle I, at the beginning of our episode where mm-hmm. like I was like why are you doing this like what <laughs> you know like I started like for, because, like I never stand up for myself but I could stand up for my child you know mm-hmm. for my baby and uh like, I remember becoming really fierce, like, at the end, like, you didn't want to mess around with me, because, like, oh, yeah. you, you said, and I don't know if that, you know, that you're, again, your experience is different, but, like, I was, like, like, why are these people need to be there? Who actually absolutely needs to be here? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these questions that I don't think I would have had the guts to, you know, stand for. Like yeah. before, it felt really big to me. Now that I think about it, well, I think I think we go through many things in our lives that that help us transition mm. into being a more active advocate for the kind of blank that we want to be. Whether it's the kind of mother you want to be, the kind of creator you want to be. Um, when we're younger, and, and I don't mean this to be dismissive of of younger people but it's just a a function of time that when you're younger things just kind of happen to you and there's a point at which you I think mature so that you realize that you're going to need to become an advocate for yourself and your learning your intellectual growth your spiritual growth that no one's going to do it for you that's right. 
that you are your only champion um, and that you are the only person in the position of being responsible for yourself and being the, 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 the only true soul caregiver of yourself is you. And, and I, I do think that's a function of age and maturity, sometimes of trauma. And um, those are big moments. And those are, no matter how, no matter what sort of tips us over into that new plane of existence. Um, and, and that sounds, I, I don't mean to sound patronizing, um, as if people who haven't experienced trauma yet don't have that maturity. I, that's not what I'm saying. But whatever it is that gets you there, whether it's just time or whether it's circumstance, it's a good thing. So for me, it's been seven years. For you, it's been 14 years. I'd love mm. to speak of triggers with you. Sure. So maybe part two would be about just triggers, just like the part where like living with grief, like all your life, you know, like mm -hmm. living that part where like, how can I, I'm going to have to live with this like my whole life. Yeah. Um, and how can I, you know, how can I, thrive and live with this, you know? Yeah. And I'd love to talk to you. And then I'm really curious. I love the way you speak of art and the necessity of creativity in in life. <laughs> and yeah. I want you because you're you're an author, you not just of this book, you know, you have a kids book. And I want like I hope everyone that listens to this, you know, go get Kate's book. She she's hmm. local here from, I think you're in the South Shore, if I'm, if yeah. I'm correct. But um, would you, would you be up to that, Kate? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to, to continue. Yay. Okay. So we'll see you for, for part two and part three. And before we leave, mm -hmm. uh, where can we find you and how can we support you? Um, well, my website is just kateinglis.com, which is I-N-G-L-I-S. And uh, so kateinglis.com is kind of where, where all, of, all of my stuff is and links to Instagram and Twitter and, and um, all of those necessary things and Facebook and stuff. Um, and in terms of support, like, gosh, I mean, I love having a dialogue with people. I, I have a small and somewhat cantankerous social media presence. <laughs> I love Instagram because I'm a photographer as well. So, so I do, I do love that keeping that practice alive, but mostly it's just, um, you know, support yourself. And if there's anything that I can add to the reckoning of another person, the grappling of another person, then I am so delighted to, to know it and just like, just give me a little fist pump, you know, just, just yeah. like give a little wave and I'll wave back. And, and, um, you know, all my books are on the site if you're curious to read them. Um, and, and really that's the best thing you can do to support authors is to, to buy their books and to give books to people who need them and to support independent bookstores, especially. And, and yeah, just, um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm giving you a fist pump right back. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll speak to you very, very soon. Bye, Kate. Wonderful. Bye.
This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.